Peter Emmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1274. Interview number 13 with Jim Eugenio and Dr. Gary Aguilar about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on November 30th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my great pleasure and perhaps my even greater privilege to present not only Jim Eugenio, but Dr. Gary Aguilar. Jim, of course, well known to this audience as the author of, among other titles, Destiny to Trade, the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews we did back in 2018 and 2019. Jim was selected by Oliver Stone to do the screenplay for JFK Revisited, his latest documentary, and one of the principal participants in that documentary, someone giving his medical expertise uh, in uh, the uh, assembly of that document, was Dr. Gary Aguilar, uh, a history-making doctor who has uh, taken the time to not only parse the relevant literature, but to come up with some fundamental information that I think proves, as Oliver Stone noted in uh, the Cannes Film Festival, conspiracy theory has become conspiracy fact. Jim, Gary, welcome back once again to our airwaves. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Well, it's my pleasure and the audience's pleasure. We have been talking about the autopsies, and uh, the let's, let's talk a little bit about what took place at Bethesda. Now, Jim, you mentioned something. Uh, Colonel Pierre Fink had finally, after uh, being very hesitant, he had testified under oath at Jim Garrison's trial, but he was ordered by an unnamed superior officer not to dissect the back wound. Uh, I wonder if you would reflect on that and uh, what that indicated about it, and then we'll go back to the uh, Bethesda autopsy and the relative qualifications of some of the people involved. Uh, Dave, Dave, if I may, and Jim, if I may, I think for people that are just tuning this in for the first time, you know, and may not have heard what went before, uh, we're talking about uh, the autopsy of President John F. Kennedy. It was done at the Naval Hospital, uh, performed by three pathologists, uh, the two that were the principally in charge, Dr. James Humes and Dr. J. Thornton Boswell, neither of whom were forensic pathologists and who were completely unqualified to do an autopsy of this nature. They brought in someone who did have forensics background, but also a government pathologist from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, Dr. Pierre Fink. Pierre Fink really uh, was like... Uh, was not a practicing forensic pathologist, uh, was not competent to have done a, uh, a, a forensic pathology exam like this one, but he came in as their consultant. And it, and, and it was he who admitted, as Jim will detail here in a moment, that, uh, that, that Dr. Humes, who was the chief pathologist there, the one supposed to be in charge of the autopsy, was in fact not in charge of the autopsy. So three incompetent pathologists are there at the most perhaps the most important autopsy in our nation's history, none of whom are qualified to do the work, uh, all government, uh, 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 under government orders, um, and, uh, and, yet, uh, and yet even one of them was willing to admit quite scandalously uh, that they were not independent. But go ahead, Jim. All right, this is, this is from my book, Destiny Betrayed, all right, the chapter 13 on the Clay Shaw trial, all right. When Oser asked if Humes was actually in charge, Fink made a disclosure which should have changed the face of the autopsy evidence forever. All right. Fink replied that Humes actually stopped and asked who was in charge here. Fink said that he heard an army general say, I am. Fink then added, and listen to this closely, you must understand that in those circumstances, There were law enforcement officials, military people with various ranks, and you have to coordinate the operations according to directions. Now, in my opinion, that should have been on the front page of every newspaper in America, okay, when Fink said that, because he's essentially saying that the autopsy doctors were not allowed to do what they were supposed to do, that they were taking orders from all of these people, and by the way, the the number 
of people in the gallery is at 33. But the two FBI guys, Siebert and O'Neill, uh, when they testified before the ARB, they said not everybody signed the, the paper they passed around. I've seen estimates as high as 40 people there. And so when Fink said this, I mean, talk about a bombshell. All right. You know, but it, it, you know, because the mass media, the MSM was so anti-garrison and so pro-Clay Shaw at that time, the only place you can find this stuff is in the New Orleans newspapers. Um, at some point we should, I uh, think for the audience, uh, dissect maybe the wall, but the, the significance of Colonel Fink being ordered not to dissect the backland, but perhaps we can get to that, uh, in the future discussion of, uh, what is termed in the documentary, the wandering backland. Now at the Fesda Naval Hospital on the evening of November 22nd, 1963, there is an autopsy in which two unqualified physicians and a not nearly qualified enough uh, physician, Colonel Pierre Fink, uh, perform the autopsy. Uh, Gary, I wonder if you would explain to the audience the significance of the notes made by a doctor under those circumstances, and then what happened to the notes of both uh, Commander Boswell and uh, rather, uh, Commander Hughes and uh, Colonel Fink. Right. Well, uh, as any physician will tell you uh, that, uh, and, and presumably anyone one else that witnesses something rather, that facts that are laid down at the time of an event or at the time of a procedure or at the time of an examination, whether it's a doctor's examination or a pathology, uh, a pathology examination, notes taken at that time are probably the closest to the event and probably the most reliable. Uh, so there is an autopsy face sheet, uh, and the autopsy face sheet was one that was prepared by uh, Colonel uh, Bos or by uh, J. Thornton Boswell, and uh, it it shows sketches of the diagram, the locations of the wounds, and that sort of thing. But there were also notes uh, taken by Bos by Humes. Uh, and by uh, the only forensic pathologist uh, there, uh, Pierre Fink. Uh, Pierre Fink's notes disappeared. Uh, James Hume's notes also disappeared, and he later on uh, testified, uh, presumably falsely, that he had burned some preliminary draft notes uh, in his fireplace on the evening that he was drafting the autopsy report. Um, but there was no reason for him to have gotten rid of his own handwritten notes taken during the autopsy, which apparently he did take, uh, nor those of the only forensic pathologist uh, who was there, Pierre Fink. But those are destroyed. And uh, that's nigh on, particularly in a criminal uh, case like this, uh, the, the absence of notes that were taken and the destruction of notes were taken is, is destroying evidence. Um, again, this only speaks to the fact that they decided what conclusions they wanted, and presumably there must have been something in the notes that Humes had written that were that have disappeared, and those that Dr. Fink had written that have disappeared, that would have uh, undermined the simple conclusion: two shots in the rear, Oswald did it. And and uh, and, and Gary, um, Oswald is still alive at the time. Yeah, he that's did that. yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean the important thing is you, you'd want to keep evidence like that because the. The uh, alleged uh, responsible party, Oswald, was then still alive, but you want to have that evidence uh, for trial, just like you want to collect all of it. So he was still alive, and they were destroying evidence. Oh, you know, and, oh, and they just thought that he would be he would be tried. It was thought he would be tried, and presumably they would have wanted to have all that evidence. Uh, and of course, he was saying, "I'm just a patsy." He he did not take credit for this assassination. Right. He supposedly authored them over to gain gravitas of some kind. Uh, Mr. Humes and Boswell. Uh, 
They interacted both with Warren Commission counsel Arlen Specter, the author of the single, or as some people have appropriately termed it, the Magic Bullet Theory, and also a gentleman uh, named Harold Lidberg. Who was Harold Lidberg, and how did Humes and Boswell and Specter interact with each other and in turn with Harold Lidberg? Harold Lidberg was the illustrator, okay, at at the uh, hospital that they brought in. And he's a very young guy. I think he's in his uh, 24 or something like that. Yeah, 22 or 24, very young. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened is that after meeting with Spectre, I believe that Boswell said in his ARB testimony, it was about 10 or 11 times. Okay, then they went in and, and this is really shocking when you think about it. See, sometimes this stuff is so raw, it doesn't register because there's so much of it. But to go to this meeting with this young guy and have him illustrate the wounds that are going to be in the Warren Commission volumes and to do so without any notes, without any pictures, without any x-rays, which is nothing, you know, except their memories, which I believe were probably replenished by their meetings with Arlen Specter. And so they go ahead and advise him how to draw these pictures, which are utterly false, okay? <laughs> you know, the, the, the pictures ended up being very deceptive. In fact, they were so deceptive that when Tink Thompson wrote his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, he exposed them as being deceptive, that Kennedy's head was not in the position, okay, that was depicted in the Warren Commission when the fatal bullet struck, all right? And the bullet that went through Kennedy's, well, they have it going through his neck. It wasn't in his neck. Later, Years later, when the autopsy photographs were finally uh, uh, released in some form by the HSCA, we can see that that bullet is clearly in Kennedy's back. Rittberg really felt bad about this later. It kind of haunted him. And I believe he wrote a book about this, which I, unfortunately, I haven't read, but I believe, and I don't mind saying this today, and I would say it if Arlen Specter was alive, you know, I, I believe that Arlen Specter from the very beginning, okay, was going ahead and framing the case the way he knew that it had to be framed in order to come up with the result that had been preordained, I would say, probably by January or February of 1964. Arlen Specter uh said that he uh did not interview you know or talk to the witnesses before particularly the medical witnesses <clears throat> before their testimony but in fact we later turned out it later turned out that he had he had basically met with a number of the medical witnesses particularly uh some of the doctors at Parkland Hospital on numerous occasions before they testified he basically was very interested to shape their uh, testimony and and it it's it's scandalous to see how how he would ask very leading questions in a way that there was only one answer and the answer would give him the answer that he wanted rather than letting the, the physicians speak for themselves. He basically painted them into the corner, uh, with the, the most, you know, dishonest and, and leading questions. Uh, Jim and Gary, the placement of the back wound and the changing by Harold Bridberg of where that was and the information we spoke of earlier in which Colonel Fink testified under oath that he was ordered not to dissect the back wound. Uh, the significance of that for the single or magic bullet theory. It's, 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 well, it's awesome. It's awesome when I you mean, think about it because yeah, the, the key thing, the key thing, Jim, to, to emphasize here is that um, if you have a wound, you really don't know where that wound goes if you don't properly dissect it to see what is the true path of this wound. They were ordered not to not to dissect that wound, 
and um, uh, and you know even though they they asked for permission to do so, they they were not allowed to do that. If you don't know where that wound goes, it's very difficult for you to make a good reconstruction of the nature of, of the origin of the shot and the trajectory and so on and so forth. Uh, that's a crucial piece of, of evidence uh, that they were not allowed uh, to get. They were ordered not to do that. They were, their permission was denied, put it that way. That's the way John Latimer put it. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's a crucial piece of evidence. And, and, and the back wound, uh, I think, as, as you've mentioned, Dave, and other things that, that I've seen you write, um, there's great discrepancy about where that wound was. Now, as you have pointed out, Dave, uh, uh, and to your credit, thank you for doing this, that uh, the one physician who was in the limousine, on, in, 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 in the cavalcade of cars with JFK's limousine, at Parkland Hospital and at the autopsy, uh, was uh, Commander Berkeley, who was the president's personal physician. Berkeley was there at all three places. And Berkeley uh, drew on a diagram and and specified that the uh, back wound entered at the level of the third thoracic vertebra, which is down the back a little bit. It's not way down, but it's 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 down there a little bit. And he signed his initials to that diagram. Well, the diagram that there was then, and he's the president's position. The diagram that's reproduced by the Warren Commission does not have that diagram. Doesn't have his signed statement that it was the third thoracic vertebra. Uh, the x-rays seem to show a fracture of something called the transverse process, which is the little tiny bone that sticks out from the vertebra on each side from which the back spine, the back muscles, uh, connect, uh, at the level of T1, the first thoracic vertebra makes it a little bit higher, but all of this again, you're 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 basically excluding evidence um, that uh, <clears throat> that 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 shifts you away from the idea that he was shot from above and behind. Then, but Berkeley himself, as you've also pointed out, Dave, and it's worth emphasizing here, and I, I don't mind going into it. Uh, he was pretty convinced that there was reason to suspect Oswald hadn't done it or hadn't done it alone, uh, and uh, he quietly uh, contacted uh, uh, an author. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I'm trying to think of the author's name. Michael um, Kurtz. Well, no, Michael well, Kurtz. No, no, H- Henry Hurt. Henry Hurt. And Henry Hurt. And then, then yeah. Michael Kurtz. And and Michael Kurtz. But Henry Hurt, uh, he had a friendly conversation with Henry Hurt, and he said, yeah, I had, you know, did not agree with the Warren Commission's conclusion. I said, oh, well, that's great. Let's get together and let's meet. When he called him back, boom, he wouldn't meet with him. He all of a sudden just shut it down. Uh, he also, his attorney, a guy named William Illig, wrote the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, uh, suggesting that, uh, that, 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 you know, Dr. Berkeley, who, and, and all these reinvestigations, the medical autopsy evidence, they never interviewed the president's personal physician, the only physician that was there in the motorcade at Parkland and at the autopsy. I, he was never interviewed by these people. Um, but he'd written to the House Select Committee asking, uh, you know, uh, you know, at least suggesting that he that he had information uh, of a perhaps pro-conspiratorial nature, and uh, that was shut down. That was never followed up. Nobody ever followed up or examined or, or followed up on that. In fact, when Cyril Wecht, who was a member of the Forensic Pathology Panel, um, heard about it, he was furious. He said, "You know, why why did why weren't we apprised of this? We are the physicians looking at at this evidence. Why weren't we why weren't we apprised?" That the president's personal physician, uh, was asking, uh, to speak with us about it and we were kept in the dark about it. That's because the lawyers were managing this to keep Oswald in the dark. Um, uh, moving again, Dr. Berkeley with JFK's personal physician, the only doctor present both at Parkland and at the Bethesda autopsy. Uh, he indicated to the House Select Committee, actually in 1967, he was being interviewed for an oral project about the Kennedy Library, for the Kennedy Library, when asked about the number of bullets that penetrated JFK's body. He's indicated he didn't want to be quoted on that, which is significant. Then to both, uh, Messrs. Hurt and, uh, the second, uh, uh, author whose name escapes me right off the top of my Henry head. Henry Hurt. Henry Hurt and Michael Kurtz. Henry Hurt and Michael Kurtz. Thank you. Um, 
He initially indicated that he wanted to uh, give them information which would disprove the Warren Commission's thesis, and then in the exact words of Douglas Horn of the ARRB, uh, he then cut them off at their knees. He then uh, reversed that, and I think it might be worth going into, although we have touched on this before, then when the ARRB tried to uh, proceed through the law firm that had represented the, by this point in time, deceased Dr. Berkeley, uh, what happened when their daughter uh, was approached by them? And that, how see, that, that's really interesting. That is really, really interesting because Berkeley had passed on by now. All right. So Jeremy Gunn and Doug Horn decided, well, why don't we try and get Berkeley's files? out of this uh, big law firm in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown, all right? And so they contacted his daughter. And at first, she was fine, okay? She's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to write up an order for you uh, to go ahead and get his files. And so Jeremy Gunn and Doug Horn thought, oh, this is going to be great. You know, and so come time to actually go ahead and arrange for the order, as you can see in the film, Jeremy Gunn wrote a note saying uh, she refused to execute the order to get her father's files or words of the effect like that. Now, come on, me, you, and Gary know what happened. You know, somebody obviously got to her, and they didn't want Berkeley's files out as part of the ARB collection. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 same sort of thing happened with Henry Hurd. Henry Hurd had a very friendly conversation with uh, Dr. Berkeley, and they agreed to meet and talk. And then all of a sudden, when it came time to do that, boom, he just shut him off, did not want to talk to him. Somebody gets to these people. They get to these people and they say, we want you to shut up. And, yeah, and, right. And, 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 and the, how else do you explain it? Well, there was an interesting statement. Uh, that uh, John Springer, and we'll get into the autopsy photographs uh, in a few minutes, but John Springer was asked uh, about basically signing off on the, uh, signing off on documents which were missing from the record, and he was asked, I believe by Jeremy Gunn, uh, well, you know, didn't people object to basically being uh, requested to do something that was approximating perjury? And then Springer said, and we, we've talked about this before, Jim. Yes. Said, well, some do object, but they don't last very long. And I think that is a sinister subtext to so much of what we are presenting here. Gary, is, um, is, is is that Stringer or is that Ebersole? Oh, no, I think it was Stringer. I think it was Stringer. It was Stringer? Okay. Yeah, but they don't last very long. He said, well, you know, well, he was asked why, you know, he signed a false statement about the uh, completeness of the autopsy file. He says, well, you know, I was ordered to. And he said, well, not everybody would do that. He says, yeah, but they, yeah, but if they don't, they don't, they don't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> that that I mean, really is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's right, you know. Um, but I think that, you know, Stringer essentially testified to the fact that he, that, that the photographs of JFK's brain that are in the, the, the record now are not photographs that he took. And he was the photographer, he was presumably the photographer of record. Uh, and he also uh, testified that there were autopsy photographs uh, that are, that he took that are missing, that are not there. Right. And, and people always want to say, now, now Stringer, unfortunately, you know, is a bit of a company man. He's not a he, even though he was the official photographer at Naval Hospital, he wasn't in the military himself. But he was, um, he was so good that other uh, uh, that people were sent to learn how to do autopsy photography under his tutelage. So the autopsy photographs are, are not. I mean, I've seen the originals, and they're they're very clear, they're very crystal clear. But they, it, it's very clear from. Everyone who is involved in the taking of the autopsy photographs, and that means all three pathologists, a woman who worked at Anacostia where they were developed uh, named Sandra Spencer, another photographer named uh, Knudsen, uh, and John Stringer, all these people recall having either seen or taken photographs that are now in, no longer in the record. Um, and Stringer said that he was told that he used a duplex uh, film holder uh, with a Graflex camera. 
and uh, you, know, you, you take a picture and then you turn the film holder over and take another one. And uh, he said, well, and he, he was advised, he says, well, you know, some of those film holders, you know, were empty. And Stringer said, that's just complete and utter BS. You know, that's just BS. Uh, in any case, so the, yeah, anyone that can find the autopsy photographs, JFK's autopsy photographs on, online, will look through the file of photographs and will usually find one that shows Jack Kennedy lying on the autopsy table, taken from the left side, the uninjured side. Okay. I mean, okay, that's fine, right? You think they didn't take one from the side that it was injured on, on that side, a comparable picture? Of course they did. That picture isn't in the, in the original records, not whether it's online or even at the National Archives in the originals, which I've seen. There's no, there are no good pictures of the full extent of Jack Kennedy's uh, head injury. Now, this is where it gets sort of uh, into the weeds a little bit, but it's worth exploring this about the autopsy photographs. Because what we read in the autopsy protocol, that is the official autopsy report written by Dr. Humes and Boswell, um, that JFK's skull defect was 13 centimeters of forward aft. Okay. And that, that is the official dimensions of the skull defect, uh, and diagrams by Rydberg and other people will show a diagram, that, uh, an image that looks something like that. But on the night of the autopsy, Jay Thornton Boswell drew on his face sheet, they call it. That was the diagram he used. And he sketched out a skull diagram. And in that, right in the middle of the skull, there's the notation 17 missing, which means, and he was asked about this several times, including by me on a, on a recorded call on the phone, but asked uh, uh, by the Assassination Records Review Board and also sat, asked by the House Select Committee, what does 17 stand for? He says, well, when we first got the body, the skull defect was 17 centimeters. So people who want to argue that, oh, no, JFK's skull defect was only toward the right front. It was 13 centimeters, not that huge, huge, but not gigantic need to go back to the original autopsy record of the night of the autopsy where Boswell says it was 17 centimeters. So how did 17 centimeters a defect become 13 centimeters? And he testified. He said that we got a late arriving skull fragment that fit down into the back of the skull. And when that was put in position, then the defect only measured 13 centimeters. But originally, the original defect when he arrived at the in the morgue was a defect of 17 centimeters. Now, Anybody has a caliper or wants to do this with a ruler, they can test it themselves. The defect in JFK's skull on the photographs goes just about to the edge of his hairline. So put a, a, a ruler at the edge of your hairline and measure 17 centimeters back. You will see that a defect would have necessarily gone all the way to the back of the head, way to the back, of the, way back into the occiput. And that's what JFK's uh, skull defect looked like. And there's... Other reasons to, uh, to to elaborate on that further, but but that's this is the sort of evidence that uh, is given short shrift by defenders of the Warren Commission's uh, conclusions. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to acknowledge the significance of it, and uh, uh, and and basically the rudimentary evidentiary value of it. Now, now, Dave, I think the obvious question that we can ask uh, with that information: Could one bullet? really do that much damage? Well, the uh, Appalachian Magic Bullet, I think, goes right to the core of this. You know, I want to interject a personal note. Uh, I find myself, I found myself, I should say, past tense, uh, having difficulty focusing on the medical uh, medical forensic minutia of JFK's assassination. As you note in the film, Gary, as noted in the Zapruder film, uh, you note in JFK Revisited that JFK's head explodes all over, well, not just the limousine, but Daily Plaza. People were picking up pieces of his brain and his flesh. There even is a, uh, there is footage of the interior of the limousine before it is cleaned up. And there, there is blood, there are uh, other pieces of matter with a skull and or brain. And so when, and we'll get into the, the, the remarkable appearances of JFK's apparently intact brain, uh, 
I, I, I found, I initially found myself having a difficult time focusing on that as you uncovered when the House Select Committee on Assassination claimed that the witnesses, 26 witnesses at the Bethesda uh, autopsy contradicted the information presented by the Parkland physicians. And the, you, then you uncovered the fact that that was simply a lie. Uh, again, this, this is proof of what Oliver Stone noted uh, to the Cannes Film Festival. Conspiracy theory has become conspiracy fact. Uh, the brain, Kennedy's brain, uh, I, I, I the the account of what happened with that and with the photographs of it and uh, so forth is to me surreal. Uh, Gary and Jim, if you would recount what happened with JFK's brain, and that we should then perhaps, uh, after you know, I'll, I'll interject this briefly about the William Midget. Well, we're, uh, we're supposed to believe yeah. that the brain wasn't weighed that night. Okay. All right. Um, if you can believe it, it's hard to believe that. Uh, but that's what most people say. And most, and that's what the record says. When it was weighed, it was 1500 grams, which is very, very weird. And I, as you noted, Gary spoke to this fact very eloquently in the film. All right. Because they did a study, a very extensive study of about 8,000 specimens. And they came to the conclusion that the average brain should weigh about 1,340 grams. Well, how can Kennedy's brain be over the norm by that much if so much of it is splattered in the car, splattered on Jackie Kennedy's suit? We see Jackie Kennedy actually going out the back of the car, and she said later she was picking up a piece of his skull, all right? The two motorcycle drivers on the left side of the limousine said they got hit so hard they thought they would hit with bullets. All right. You know, and it just defies imagination that Kennedy's brain with all that damage to it could be more than the norm. I'll, I'll let Gary fill in what, what Stringer said, which I think is very well, important stuff. Yeah. I, I think that. <clears throat> There's, um, there are a lot of quotes that are worth uh, considering here, including the fact that, uh, uh, that Hume said that half of the right cerebrum was blasted away. Jason Thornton, Thornton Boswell, the other pathologist said two thirds of the right cerebrum was blown away. Uh, Stringer said that a lot of the brain was missing. Other witnesses, including FBI agents said that a lot of the brain was missing. Uh, but again, uh, the brain that shows up in evidence and is weighed weighs 1500 grams. And, and if and other studies have shown that the average adult human male brain weighs between 1215 and 1400 uh, grams, <clears throat> and uh, or 1415 grams. So we're supposed to believe that a brain that has been blasted all over the place has now weighs more than an average brain. Um, there's a fellow who's defending the, the jet effect. Uh, who the guy named Nick Nally, who came up with the brilliant idea that, well, Kennedy's brain must have weighed 2,100 grams before he was shot in the head, which would explain, which would explain why they had jets back to the left, because all that 600 grams of material ejecting outward to the right front would, uh, would propel him backward. Well, of course, that's completely preposterous. Ask any pathologist, uh, in the world, uh, who does, uh, brain autopsies, and there is no such thing as a 2,100 gram weight in brain. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, but what you see, and I think it's worth quoting a guy named Masad Ayub. What you see happen in the, um, Zabruder frame when he is hit in the head in Zabruder frame 313, uh, is quite, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's quite shocking. Um, and so I'd like to, I'd like to quote a guy named Masad Ayub who wrote in, uh, uh, in Guns and Ammunition. Uh, and this is a quote from him. He is, uh, <clears throat> he's a respected gun, his name is Masad, M-A-S-A-A-D-A-U-A-Y-O-B, a respected gun expert and the former vice chairman of the Forensics Evidence Committee of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Quote, 
The explosion of the president's head as seen in frame 313 of the Zabruder film is simply not characteristic of a full metal jacketed rifle bullet traveling at 2,200 feet per second or less. It is far more consistent with an explosive wound of entry with a small bore hypervelocity bullet traveling between 3,000 and 4,000 feet per second and probably toward the higher end of that scale. An explosive wound of entry occurs when a highly liquid area of the body, such as the brain, is struck by a high-velocity round. The tissue swells violently during the microseconds of the bullet's passing and seeks the line of least resistance. That least resistance is the portal of entry wound that appeared a microsecond before, and the bullet will not bore an exit hole to relieve the pressure for another microsecond or two. Yada, yada, yada. So essentially what he's saying is that jacketed bullets don't do that. And he goes on to say, in terms of ballistics, he thought it was probably a 30-30. He said, you know, in terms of uh, ballistics, the Manneker Arcana bullet is similar to a 30-30 round, which has a similar diameter. He says the Carcano round... has a similar diameter. And he says, ask any homicide detective if he's ever seen a 30-30 round blow up a man's head up at 55 to 60 yards, exploding the calvarium up uh, and away from the body body proper. Ask any hunter of a deer-sized game if he's ever seen the same thing at that distance. It happens only very close. It happens only at very close range with a ballistic, with that ballistic technology. The wound we see happening in frame 313 in this Bruder film and see the results of most clearly in frame 337 is simply not consistent with this rifle cartridge at that distance in living tissue. It is particularly inconsistent with a round, with a round nose full metal jacketed bullet of the type Oswald had in his rifle. Yada, yada, yada. In any case, so you have this thing, and, and it, just to get back to the business of Nick Nally talking about the ejecta and material exp- exploding from the head to the right front, driving to the left. Well, all the the ejecta material, as Tink Thompson has shown in his new book, the force of that ejecta material didn't go to his right front. It went to the left and the left rear, such that the the two officers riding in JFK's left rear in motorcycles were struck, as Jim pointed out, with such force that one of them said he thought he'd been hit by a bullet. And and when you look at the debris field, the debris field is all to the left and the rear of, of uh, Jack Kennedy and not to the right front. Yes, there's debris all over the, there's a little bit of debris that's sprinkled all over the hood and other places like that. But the major debris ejecta goes to the left. Um, and, 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 and it's crucially important to understand that that uh, explains you know, that, or at least supports the idea he was hit from the right front. But there's something else that, that is not well talked about. I've begun talking about it in the last couple of years. It's hard to convey this to people. But, uh, two things. One, duplication tests. Okay. The government decided it was going to try to duplicate Oswald's feet with human skulls filled with brain equivalent material. So they set up human skulls and they shot them from behind. And a staunch war defender, Larry Sturdivant, testified about what happened in those uh, experiments. They shot 10 skulls. They showed the films of a couple of them to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And as they were showing the films, Larry Sturdivant testified the fact he said, as you can see, all skulls flew away from the rifle, not back toward it. All 10 of them, 10 for 10, at about uh, three feet per second, which is more than what have been enough to drive Kennedy's head. And that's shooting skulls with a jacketed bullet that doesn't flatten on impact, but immediately penetrates through bone. Well, a good case can be made. And in fact, I think an overwhelming case can be made that he wasn't hit by a jacketed bullet from the right front. He was hit by a soft pointed hunting round, a non-jacketed bullet that flattens on impact. Because Whereas a jacketed bullet will pass through tissue and not impart too much momentum in the direction the bullet is traveling, a non-jacketed bullet flattens on impact and imparts a lot of momentum. And one of the reasons we think that a jacketed, that a non-jacketed bullet hit him in the right front is that when jacketed bullets hit bone, they immediately flatten on impact and, and release a whole slurry of tiny little fragments that are deposited right near the entry point. Okay. And that tiny little fragments 
are present in JFK's original autopsy figure, uh, uh, autopsy uh, x-rays. And where are they? In the right front quadrant of his head. Yeah, see, we, words, we, we tried to do this in the film. We tried to illustrate this point with Mike Chesser, uh, Dave yeah. Mantic, and Gary, that the, the, the fragment pattern in Kennedy's skull uh, is indicative of dust-like particles in the front with the larger fragments towards the center or the rear of the skull. And that is indicative of an entry. All right. And by the way, and that's, and like he just said, that's Larry Sturdivant. <laughs> He's saying it for you. So as, as Roger Feynman used to say, it's always great when you can use the other side's evidence to prove your case. Okay. And that's what, that's what we tried to do in the film. Yeah. I know the thing about this, uh, Dave, is that this evidence uh, has been there in the record all these years, but wasn't really quite understood. In other words, I'm saying that the tiny little fragments of the right front quadrant of the head, okay, well, but I'm just a crazy conspiracy theorist, can't trust me. All right, let's go back to the chairman of the Department of Radiology, Russell Morgan, who is the X-ray authority uh, for the Clark panel. And if you read the Clark panel report, I think it's on page 14 or 16, something like that, 13, they describe the x-ray and he talks about the fact there are tiny little fragments. And where are they? The right front quadrant of the head. When Humes testified before the Warren Commission, he was asked about the x-rays. He said, well, there were there were myriad little dust-like fragments. Well, if you don't see dust-like fragments with jack and bullets, okay? Um, uh, then Kellerman uh, was also asked about them because he was there at the autopsy too. And he said, yeah, there were tiny little stars in there. Well, jacketed bullets don't give that. You know, uh, non-jacketed, soft-pointed hunting rounds that flatten on impact and immediately release a whole uh, swarm of tiny little fragments. And the fragments don't go very far from where uh, they enter because tiny fragments have what they call high drag in tissue. That is, their mass is very small and relative to their mass, their surface area is large. They're stopped very quickly in tissue. A larger fragment will drive through. Now, this could get us into a very lengthy conversation of JFK's autopsy x-rays, and I, and I don't want to go there because I think I would bore the audience and, and put them to sleep, but, but important, the important thing to remember is that not only is his drive back into the left easily explained by momentum transfer from a non-jacketed bullet, the evidence for a non-jacketed bullet is right there in the x-rays, and it's always been right there in the x-rays, and in fact, that evidence is inconsistent with the jacketed bullet like Oswald was using. Uh, point. We've got about 15 minutes left in this interview. What I'm going to do is to uh, introduce some key points of information from the documentary and then let the two of you uh, develop that for the audience. Uh, John Springer was one of the autopsy photographers. Uh, as you have noted, when he was shown... Uh, the photographs he had allegedly taken, he noted discrepancies in the film and the, the type that he had used. But uh, as Douglas Horn indicates in the film, uh, John Springer only took pictures from above, and that is at variance of what, what uh, was placed on the record. Right. There's there's about four or five different uh, points in which Stringer uh, denied the autopsy photographs. One is what you what what you mentioned, okay. The lack of Bassler views below. All right. Another one was what Gary just mentioned that he did. He took pictures with a different process than a press pack, which he noticed these pictures were taken with. They were there in a series. He didn't do that. All right. And then he um, looked at the uh, film very closely. And he says, I think this is Ansco. And he said, I didn't use Ansco. I used Kodak. All right. And then he said, Jeremy Gunn said, take a look at the cerebellum here. Is that damaged? And he said, no. And he said, didn't you say that there was a damaged cerebellum? And he said, yes. And so on those four or five grounds at the end of the session, Jeremy Gunn asked him, you know, are are you ready to deny that you took these photographs? And he said words to the effect, if that's Ansco film, 
And if that's a press pack, I didn't take these pictures. So I don't see how you can get there. As, as, as Doug Horn said in the film, this is the kind of stuff you can take into court because it's a rule of law that if you're going to admit a picture or an illustration or a map, the guy taking that picture, illustration or drawing the map, he has to testify that that is what he did, that this picture is what he took. These pictures would not be allowed in in a court of law. In fact, they'd be very good, as Gary just talked about, you know, they'd be very good evidence for Oswald's lawyer. Well, ARB, ARB had a Dr. Robert Kirshner working with them. Uh, what did Robert Kirshner tell the ARRB about the brain that he examined? Well, as you pointed out elsewhere, and again, this is, I, I try to look up that reference to when we were, when I was preparing for this tonight, but just didn't have the time to do it. But my recollection of it is that the uh, appearance of the brain was very gray in, in, in the autopsy photographs, indicating that it had been informal and for at least a couple of weeks. Uh, and th- there's no evidence that Kennedy's brain had been in, in, uh, had been in formal in that long when, when they did the autopsy. So, uh, you know, my own view, and I think anyone who, you know, <laughs> thinks logically about a 1500 gram weight, uh, in a brain uh, that had been blasted like Kennedy's was, uh, must also suspect that the brain that we have, uh, photographs of and evidence for in an autopsy wasn't Kennedy's brain. Yeah, he said it was very well fixed. Okay. Very well fixed. It had been like it had been formally, but because the longer it's informal and it, 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 that what the, the brain itself is very jelly like when it comes, when it's fresh. And it's very hard to examine it that way because you have to cut it into sections and, and, and follow bullet tracks through, which they never did and they should have done, by the way. That's another aspect of their failed autopsy examinations. They never did follow a bullet track through the brain. And in fact, I, my suspicion is looking at that brain, they probably wouldn't have found one because the brain in evidence now uh, does not look like a bullet that went through it. In any case, uh, be that as it may, uh, <clears throat> the longer you put it in formalin uh, to, to prepare it for sectioning, that is to cut it into like a, a bread loaf into sections so you can look and follow a foot bullet track through it, the longer, the, the, the firmer it gets and the grayer it gets because initially it comes out looking kind of very pinkish with a light gray. And I've been in neurosurgery procedures where I've seen live brains and it has a, you know, kind of a, uh, a light pinkish gray look, um, and then longer it's informal and it, it gets into a kind of a, uh, a damp, uh, uh, or a dark, uh, dark gray and firm consistency. And, and his, his view of those pictures was, yeah, this looks like a brain that's been fixed for a long time, a couple of weeks maybe, which, which not possible. It doesn't fit with the, the, the confused scenarios of when Kennedy's brain did get a supplemental autopsy. Anywhere from three days afterward to like five or six days afterward. One of the points that's made in the documentary is that the brain was not sectioned. And that would have been very important for any sort of forensic determination. Can you develop that quickly for us, Gary? Yeah, see, there's there's two ways. Uh, Gary mentioned one way that you can section a brain like you would a bread loaf. You make a straight horizontal series of cuts. All right. The other way is what they call a pie, where you cut it like a pie diagonally and then through the center. And then once the brain is fixed and you do that, that's how you track the bullet path through the brain. If you don't do that, then you really don't know, you know, what the entrance point was or what the exit point was or how many bullets. And by the way, Henry Lee said this to me um when I met him out at Malibu to do a pre-interview with him. And I asked tell, him, tell him, Henry Lee. tell him who Henry Lee is, Jim. Okay. Henry Lee is probably the foremost criminalist that there is in the United States. Okay. And maybe perhaps one of the top ones in the entire world. He's an expert at crime scene reconstruction. He gets the paid. A, yeah. yeah. He gets paid a lot of money to do crime scene reconstructions. He's one of the best that there is at it. And so I asked him about this and he said, you can't do this in the Kennedy case. And I said, why not? Because neither neither wound in Kennedy was dissected. Therefore, what you're doing is nothing but guesswork. You can't be certain. You can't testify with any authority 
that this is the trajectory of either wound in Kennedy. All right. And that's very simple to understand. And you have it from the top guy in the field. And so why this was never done is unbelievable because it was absolutely necessary to see a the directionality and b what they call was it a perforating wound that means did it go all the way through well you're never going to know that in this case uh, yeah, the, 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 the rationale they gave for not dissecting was because they wanted to save the 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 the, the brain for posterity or some ridiculous thing i mean you know <laughs> Uh, but then, but then it was put in a, a canister, and then th- there are different reports about what may have happened to it. Some people think that it was given to Berkeley, and, and then Bennett disappeared. Uh, other people uh, uh, just say that it was in a locker and then disappeared. But the brain disappeared, and and and, and incidentally, when the Clark panel did its review, did they reveal to the world that the autopsy uh, brain was missing? No. Yeah, you know, in 1967, they didn't they didn't tell the public that. Um, you know, that sort of stuff was kept secret until, uh, Cyril Wecht was finally granted access to the original autopsy materials. And he came out and said, not only is the, is JFK's brain missing, but so are the, some of the tissue slides. Well, what do you mean tissue slides? Well, they, they take little pieces of tissue right near the wounds and they look at them under a microscope. And if it's an entrant wound, it looks a lot different than an exit wound. So you want to have those kinds of slides to be able to prove your case, which of course, they were assembling that kind of evidence. Oswald was still alive. They would, would have wanted to prove that the bullet went in the back and came out the throat. And so you'd take tissue slides of that. Well, those slides are missing too. Uh, <laughs> as, well as, the, as, well as, J, as well as JFK's brain. Now, that way you can say anything you want about the case uh, authoritatively because there's no evidence to prove you're wrong. The evidence has been disappeared. Well, maybe it... Uh... If, if I were to give my candid reaction that wouldn't work on radio, violate FCC regs. Uh, <laughs> Robert, Robert Knudsen, uh, although John Stringer was the official uh, photographer record for the autopsy photos, in his Washington Post and New York Times obituaries, Robert Knudsen was credited with having taken pictures. Uh, and yet he talked about pictures he had taken that showed probes and that those had disappeared. Uh, Jimmy Gary, if you would explain the significance of probes and uh, what that indicates about uh, go, go, the... Go ahead, Gary. Yeah, well, there's there's two things about the probes. One, uh, Knudsen, uh, the photographer, a, a Kennedy family photographer, well-respected, said that he uh, saw pictures with probes through the body. Now, presumably, somebody had put a probe from the... from either the throat entrance or the throat exit, but through the body from his chest out to the throat. Okay. And, 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 and he remembers seeing those, by the way, he's not the only person that did that. There was a Dr. Robert Carney, who was, I think a third year uh, pathology resident at Bethesda hospital who said the same thing. He said that they, they, that, that they put probes through the body and Newton says he saw photographs of, of Kennedy with a probe through the body. And maybe the reason you'd want to get rid of a picture like that is if the probe happens to go in the wrong direction. What happens if the probe goes low in the back and high in the exit in the front? And so that the path is upward inside the body, which, by the way, the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded it was. But that probe would be very unhelpful uh, to making the case that Oswald had shot him from above, behind, and the bullet was going down through Kennedy if the probe shows that the bullet must have been going up through him. Uh, with regard to uh, the limousine and what was found there, we a little bit earlier, we, we spoke with Dr. Berkeley, and he dispatched his assistant. We touched on this, Jim, in our last interview, James Young. He, in turn, dispatched Mrs. Martinell and Mills, and they came up with a bullet, a bullet fragment uh, from the limousine. What, tell us about the significance of the bullet, the bullet fragment, and uh, the skull fragment that they found in the limousine. He he sent them out, Berkeley, I think it was Berkeley to Young, to these two assistants, and they went out looking for fragments of the skull, okay? And then many, many years later, Young was interviewed by a guy named Jan Herman, 
who was doing a naval history. And he revealed that that wasn't all they came back with. All right. They said that they came back with uh, a, a bullet that was bent. All right. And so then he got in contact with Ford and Gerald Ford, the former president, the former Warren Commissioner, told him to get in contact with either Gerald Posner uh, or Arlen Specter about, <laughs> about whether or not there was another extra bullet found that night. Okay. And so he actually did call Specter. He did call Specter. And he said Specter was really interested. And, and he's standing at, a, you know, at a phone, you know, in, the, in his office and he's talking, but for whatever reason, they never, uh, they never met to discuss what James Young, you know, said he discovered. I mean, is it, we, we put it in the film because I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's an important and see what, what we tried to do in the film is we tried to get in everything that had been suppressed. Okay. You know, because the ARB, had gone on for four years, all right? And the media didn't say anything about any of this stuff. And so we thought it was our job to finally bring this information and let the public decide, do you think that this proves a conspiracy or not? You know, but at least if you're going to ask that question, at least look at the evidence. And so that's 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 what we tried to do. And as Gary said, the the medical evidence and the autopsy evidence in this case has now reached a point that I believe it's pretty much probative that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. And guys like Gary and Dave Mantic and Mike Chesser, you know, have done some really, really good work on this case. And we're all in our debt to them. Well, I, I want to emphasize uh, this uh, new book, uh, uh, by Russell Kent. Uh, he's done some yeoman's work. It's a follow-up on, on some stuff I did, but in much more detail. I think that as we get near the close of this, Dave, I think that it, it might be worth my uh, re- revealing something that maybe the audience yeah. will not know because most Here, people... Gary, that, Gary, know. Gary, why don't you say the name of the book? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, JFK Medical Betrayal. The JFK okay. Medical Betrayal. Okay. Uh, Gary, we've, we've only got about three minutes left here. So, uh, you are more than, uh, in, welcome and invited to participate in a future interview, but, uh, time is marching on. We're almost at the end of this one. All right. Let me, let me just, you know, to everyone who thinks you can trust the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, ABC, CBS, and NBC on, uh, the fact that Oswald was a sole shooter. Uh, should read a letter that was published in the New York Times and written by uh, Anthony Summers, Norman Mailer, David Talbot, and uh, Washington Post journalist Jefferson Morley. They wrote, the following people to one degree or another suspected President Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy and said so either publicly or privately. LBJ, Richard Nixon, Robert Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, uh, uh, United Nations William Atwood, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Senator Richard Russell and Richard Schweikert and Gary Hart, Senators, um, uh, seven of the eight congressmen on the House Select Committee on Assassinations and its chief counsel, Robert Blakey, the Kennedy Associates, Joe Dolan, Fred Dutton, Richard Goodwin, Pete Hamill, Frank uh, Mankiewicz, Larry O'Brien, Kenny O'Donnell, Walter Sheridan, Secret Service Agent Roy Kellerman, uh, uh, presidential physician George Berkeley, Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago, Frank Sinatra, and 60 Minutes producer Don Hewitt. Well, those are people <laughs> who are really, really pretty knowledgeable about what goes on and, and historically. Uh, and all those people, including J. J. Edgar Hoover at LBJ, suspected there was a conspiracy, but you will never hear that in the uh, mainstream media. But you will, however, see that in the documentary JFK Revisited, uh, both the two no, and four. But, but, I, but I will forward that this little quote to you where it appears uh, in print, and I'll send you the link, and you can read it on the New York Times in a letter to the editor published by, again, Jefferson Morley, Anthony Summers, Norman Mailer, and David Talbot. 
that will be appreciated because we're almost out of time. So that will that will be a future item of uh, focus. Uh, remember that uh, the book JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, both the two and four hour versions of the documentary are available. Just about many plays. And of course, uh, Jim Eugenio is a semi-regular on, uh, Black Ops Radio and, uh, manages the website kennedysandking.com. And Dr. Gary Aguilar is featured prominently in both the book and the two and four hour sections of the documentary and has been a groundbreaking researcher with regard to the medical evidence. This concludes for the record program number 1274, interview number 13 with Jim Eugenio and Dr. Gary Aguilar. For Jim Eugenio and Gary Aguilar, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.